Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Kirsten, it's good to be with you again. Here we are. We're moving forward. You've joined us at another one of our conversations in our series on amplifying Black voices to open the microphone and, and open our ears and open our minds to understand the Black experience better, to understand what our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues have been going through and what we really need to hear. Our guest today is Dr. Kimberly Austin. Kim, so glad to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Welcome to a special edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Amplifying Black Voices, a series of interviews that help bridge the gap between what you think you know and what you need to hear about the true meaning of racial justice, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Real conversations about real experiences that lead to real change. Join the conversation now with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson. Kim, you have so many roles. You're a wife, mother, doctor, yoga instructor. We would really like to explore and hear from you, almost as if we were just in a coffee shop or having lunch, and you say, you know, Mark, Kirsten, here's what you need to understand about what's going on. What would you tell us? Uh, Well, Mark and Kirsten, I I think if I were to be asked, um, what is it that we need to understand uh, about where we are in society, where we are uh, as as a culture, where we are as a race, is that a lot of this is rooted in things that happened even hundreds of years ago that we've not really dealt with as a as a community, uh, as a country. We have a, a lot of things that are stereotypes. We have a lot of things that have been drilled into uh, our heads as far as um, what it means to be a Black person and, and what the where the ceiling is for being a Black person and, and uh, where the limitations are for being a Black person that I, I think, one, the Black community in some way has has bought into, but then it too, it is um, reproduced on movies and on screens and in political campaigns and those types of things such that I think that most people believe those images that they see and the things that they hear. When I was in high school, I was always a fairly good student and, and did a great job. But when I first um, started telling even my teachers and my counselors at school what I wanted to become uh, as a physician, um, their first thing was to try and put a limitation on me and try to put a ceiling on me and try to ask me, wouldn't I rather uh, go into nursing, being an LPN? There's nothing wrong with being an LPN, but that's not what I said I wanted to do. But their immediate response was, um, that's not something that you will be able to accomplish. Um, Now, I came from a family of teachers. My mom and my dad were both teachers. They were both educated, um, both had their master's degree. So education was something that was really important. And I had friends who had um, ideas and thoughts and things that they wanted to do and things that they wanted to be that they did listen to those outside voices that told them that they couldn't do it. And so they did not pursue some of the dreams that that may they may have had. And and I have friends right now that are um, they're grown, but they are regretful of not doing the things that they wanted to do in life because they listened to those outside forces that told them that they can. And I think that's the the first thing, honestly, that we have to. Um, really address when we're, we're talking about uh, how do we progress the the black community? How can we support the black community? We have to stop seeing a person who is a, a dark skin or light skin or any complexion of brown skin. We have to stop seeing them one as a threat, um, one, and then two, we have to see them as as li- being limited. 
even if they didn't come from a home. My parents, neither one of them came from a home uh, where people were educated, but both of them went to college. And then um, they, you know, my dad was an athlete in college. And, and so he had some struggles and, and some things that happened. And he left school, went back eventually. But still, they came from places where uh, they were told that they couldn't, but they push through so that they could. If we had more people that were investing as much time in telling students what they can do instead of telling students what they can't do, I, I think we would have a lot more success um, in, in education. I think we'd have a lot more successful African-American uh, people just in general as, as well. We get limitations put on us. And then even when you actually break through those limitations and you get to some of those higher places, even as a, a physician, I still on a day-to-day -day basis have to change who I am when I'm in uh, the workplace or when I'm in um, these places that are boardrooms and, and meetings and things along those lines. I have to change who I am. I have to change my diction. I have to change my, the pitch of my voice. If I ever have to um, reprimand a, a coworker uh, for doing something incorrect with a patient, I, I have one instance where I, I was uh, having to help to uh, rehabilitate, let's say, uh, a coworker. And they did many, many, many things wrong. They actually caused the patient to cry. And I had to sit down in the chair, let that person tower over me because I knew what would be said if I gave her the feedback because it was all negative. If I gave her the feedback, I'm standing up, I'm taller than her, I'm bigger than her, I knew how it would be perceived. And so I sat in a chair on purpose uh, and let her stand over me and look over my shoulder and showed her the things that um, could be done differently. Um, but even so, she still reported me to HR and told HR that I was bullying her. When I was doing what I was asked to do, and I did it as politely and as nicely as possible. But there are some things in healthcare that you can't, uh, you can't tippy-toe around. Uh, I mean, if it's wrong, you could kill someone. But here I am, even as a physician, with someone who is not a physician, um, being made to have to have meetings with people um, because she went and said from this interaction where I'm purposefully subduing myself and making myself subservient almost to her, even though I'm the one that's giving her feedback, she still takes it to HR and HR still listens to her. And I still have repercussions for doing what I was asked to do because I'm seen as a threat just because of how I look. And, and that's not okay. But, but that is day-to-day -day life. Day-to-day, -day, I, I have some friends who, who will say, how come you never invite me to your house? How come we don't hang out at your house? And I'm like, because I'm different at, at home. Um, the person you see at work is work Kim. Kim at home is, is different. And, and I don't know if you're ready for Kim at home. And, and, and honestly, a lot of it is I don't know that I'm comfortable enough mm -hmm. to bring you into Kim at home because at home I, I get to be my authentic self. At home I get to, you know, be whatever I want to be. And, and that's honestly how I got into yoga initially as a, um, a plan for fitness um, after having a child, um, but then you find the, the emotional and the spiritual aspect of it, and then you find this group of individuals that are without any judgment, like everyone is let into the family of yogis, um, no matter what, and you're able to be really more authentically yourself, um, but even in the yoga world, the yoga world also is a, a 
very white world where I was really surprised that in in certain arenas, I still find my, found myself having to uh, raise my voice to a higher pitch and and say things slightly different than what I would organically say. Um, I, I had great difficulty in even getting into a yoga studio to be able to teach in a yoga studio. Uh, you know, you would think a physician yoga instructor would be like the best of all worlds, right? But I, I had a lot of difficulty even getting into to studios. And so because of that, I, I do a lot of yoga teaching and instructing for free, mostly because I see the benefits of it so much in not only the physical benefits, but the emotional benefits, uh, the stress relieving benefits, um, and, and all of those types of things that honestly, my black and brown community really needs. And then they won't go into a yoga studio because a yoga studio has Um, lots of blonde hair, blue eyed, size zero girls who are standing on their heads, which is awesome and amazing, um, but that's intimidating. And then oftentimes when you walk in as the big brown girl, they kind of look at you a little bit, a little bit funny. So people won't go into those studios, but they will come into the spaces that I go into to to teach for free. I do virtual classes to try and, and bring it to people for free. I have been known to get on the exam tables in my office, um, showing people things that they could do at home that might help when something hurts here or there, uh, or even doing breath work and breath exercises when their blood pressure is too high. I try and show them some things that they can do that can bring their blood pressure down so that we're not always having to rely on medicines because Friends who know me call me the doctor who doesn't like medicines. It, it really isn't the best way. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there, there are so many other things that you can do for yourself that is, is so much better than, than just medication. Um, and so that's how I got to be a yoga instructor. So I could bring it to, to my people, to my patients, to people who won't go into a studio. So I can and show them that this is something else that you can do. We don't have to just accept high blood pressure. We don't have to just accept these things. Um, there are things that, that we can do that can be a benefit to us. And so, um, Kim, if you don't mind, I would like to just ask a question. There's so much here that I don't want to miss this opportunity. You just handed like us a basket of (laughs) items to pick from. So one, you're just even starting from your childhood and the limitations that are set on you just emotionally and boundaries Mm -hmm. and not even allowing you to have a mindset that said you can be whatever you want Mm -hmm. to be, right? Which is Mm -hmm. supposedly Mm -hmm. what our country Mm -hmm. supposedly Mm -hmm. offers, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's say you you move forward. You have the mindset that you can be anything Mm -hmm. you want to be. Mm -hmm. There's no access to education Mm -hmm. in most Black communities. Mm -hmm. Funding Mm -hmm. is being Mm -hmm. systematically dismantled. Mm -hmm. Betsy Mm -hmm. DeVro Mm -hmm. is making sure that there Mm -hmm. are no public educations, Mm -hmm. right? Taking Mm -hmm. it away Mm -hmm. and moving all of the Mm -hmm. money. So even Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. we move, we get the mindset. We believe we, mm-hmm. you, as a as a black community, you believe that you can move forward. It's not available to you. How did you overcome that hurdle? Because that's huge. Well, you know, like I said, I was born to two parents who are teachers, but I was raised very, very poor. We lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the projects on three four zero one Campbell Street in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, and we were poor to the fact that when I was about eight years old, 
uh, I almost died from pneumonia because we didn't have insurance and they didn't have any, right. uh, we didn't have money to go to, to the hospital. And our school system had a school-wide uh, food drive to actually feed my family because we did not have food. How I got from that place to being into medicine, honestly, is one, my parents instilled in me that the idea that I didn't have to live by those limitations that I could do and I could be. Um, two, I think some of it is personality. I'm one of those people that you tell me I can, I'm going to show you real quick how much I can. Um, and then Three, I had the opportunity. My mother actually used to babysit um, for a doctor, kind of in a nanny type of situation um, in the summer times. And so then I got to um, see that doctor and I got to um, uh, ask her if I could work with her and go to her office. And at that time, I was allowed to. I, I started candy striping as soon as they um, allowed us to candy stripe. And so I'd walk to the hospital in my red and white striped uniform and stripe most days of the week. And, and that way I got to uh, be introduced to other doctors that were in the hospital system, to the nurses. I got to help out in doing a, a lot of things because I did it from the time I was 12 to the time I was 18. Um, that opened a lot of doors for me where I was able to have people who knew me and knew who I was and was willing to actually write letters of recommendation and those types of things for me to, to be able to, to get into school. I, I ended up getting a fairly prestigious um, scholarship to uh, undergraduate. And then once I graduated that program, I initially didn't get into med school when everybody else did. Uh, part of the problem with that is the fact that I had been in school in Europe um, for a couple of semesters. And when I got back to, and when, before I left for Europe, I was told by my professors that I didn't need to worry about applying to med school because um, it was fine. I could do it when I got back. I had never done this before. We didn't have internet. I was relying on, on these people to tell me the information correctly. So I get back and realize that I'm late. Everybody else has already applied. Everybody else has been started to get their acceptance letters. So I got my stuff in, but I didn't get into medical school initially. I actually found out a week before med school started that I was accepted. And it actually took one of the state legislators found out that I had applied and my school had not accepted me and that there hadn't been any brown students that had been accepted in years or, you know, in, in the school. And so then they pressed some buttons and Suddenly, I got into med school a week before med school is supposed to start. So how did I get past all of that? I think my parents and parental support, I think uh, personality, and I think I took advantage of opportunities. And I actually went to go find the people who were in the roles that I wanted to be in. I placed myself in their presence and then showed them how hard I worked and how quickly I could learn things such that I started to gain their respect. And then they were in turn able to help me by doing letters and those types of things. But it started, honestly, with the mentality of I can do it. Without the starting point of that thought of, of this is possible for me, I, I think none of that happens. One of the people that, that showed me how possible it was was actually a Black doctor that um, I met when I was in my late teens. And, and she took me under her wing and she showed me, she worked for the VA hospital system. She showed me a, a lot and, and, and really spent a lot of time with me, giving me that example of, of what I could do, what I could be. Seeing her was, was, was very instrumental in, in addition to the other um, non-Black doctors that, that I worked with, you know, they were welcoming after years of candy striping. Having that 
mentality, having that that support, having even that idea um, that you can do this and the support of that idea was the starting point. I love that. Love what you said about the yoga. And I'm brown hair, blue eyes, but I got to tell you, I really do hate the, the blonde hair, blue eyed thing in yoga, right? It really, it, it pushes me it's away too. It's very pervasive. It is. I was going to say, but, I'm, a, I'm a little intimidated to go into my Pilates <laughs> class. Okay? Right. I, right. I don't look like either one of you. <laughs> but let's be clear. The Yogi Nanda is brown. Yoga yes. started yes. in yeah. India, right? Yeah. It, started brown. Very good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kim, which raises the question, mm-hmm. I guess, now, you know, thinking mm-hmm. about uh, mm-hmm. your, your you, you push through the the medical school, but let's fast forward to today and the racial mm-hmm. stereotypes that you might face. You were describing the interaction with another uh, colleague in your clinic. How many times have you faced the situation where, say, somebody doesn't really know your title, your position, your status, and you say, I, I just don't think you know who I am. I'm the doctor, you know, but <laughs> well, they've made, I, but they've made these I, I, assumptions just from looking at you. Well, you, you get that a lot. You get that. You have to remember, I've been doing this for 20 years now. So um, most people that are coming to me as patients, they know who, what, who I am. They know who I look, what I look like. Um, and so I don't get that as often, but definitely younger when I didn't have as, as many patients and my face wasn't out there as much. I've been on a local commercial for the hospital system I work for for about two years now. So um, lots of people see my face as the, a doctor on this commercial. But before then, you get a lot of, you must be the nurse, you must be the MA, you must be this or that. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just, I don't really have the God complex. So I kind of take it in stride. It, it, it's never really bothered me so much. The place where it does bother me is kind of in this racial climate that we're in right now when I'm at the grocery store. Mm. You don't see me in my white coat. Well, you never see me in my white coat because I don't wear it, but um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know who or what I am. When I'm at the grocery store, you see a, a brown woman approaching you at the grocery store. And, and so those are the, the points, especially in this time, um, that are the scariest for me. You know, I, I had a incidents um, driving home from work uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, a guy who got quite upset with me because I didn't run through a yellow light and he's just spewing all kinds of things. Those are the times, but it, it is, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't take myself too seriously, I guess. So it doesn't bother me when a patient or someone like that doesn't realize who I am. Uh, or, or what I am, I'm happy to inform you. <laughs> yes, there you go. No, I think uh, we also wanted to extend the conversation a little bit because you work in a clinic. I, I'm thinking about now the patients that come see you, mm-hmm. but I'm also thinking about mm-hmm. in the Black community, access to health care. You were just talking mm-hmm. about some of the chronic conditions that the Black community mm-hmm. is sort of well known for, uh, the high blood mm-hmm. pressure mm-hmm. and diabetes and so forth. But mm-hmm. I'm just curious, what are some of the implications of you know, racial discrimination, uh, social injustice, access to health care being a real right? I think we're coming around to understanding that better. What are what are your observations and experiences in that regard? I spend almost all day, every day now, comforting, um, encouraging, telling people about breathwork exercises, discussing anxiety, discussing um, stress apps that you might be able to use, discussing breathwork that you can use to decrease your heart rate, to help decrease your blood pressure. Um, there is a, a level of anxiety that is happening in the Black and Brown community that I have not experienced before. The Black and Brown community, we, we're, we're not generally 
that um, open to discussing mental health concerns anyway. And so then to have um, such a, a large number of, of my patients coming in and just telling me I'm stressed. I, that's usually how they present it. I'm, I'm stressed. Uh, I'm anxious. I can't take this. I can't sleep you know, those types of things. Um, and then what happens though, um, is you take that stress and it actually leads to other medical conditions such as high blood pressure, such as increasing risk for heart attacks and strokes and those kind of things. Um, and so I'm, I'm seeing in this climate, a lot of people are taking that internally um, and then having uh, a lot more mental health um, issues than, I, than I've seen in, in my career in, in the 20 years I've been doing this thus far. You know, I, I try my best to get people into um, therapy and, and of course use medicines when we need to, but trying to get people into therapy, trying to get people into counseling is oftentimes something that is hard to do because insurance doesn't cover it quite as well um, as you would a, a, a medical doctor appointment. And we still don't give mental health the, the respect that it actually deserves. Um, and I oftentimes will have people be upset that they are having a mental health struggle. And, and I tell them all the time, like a mental health diagnosis is no different than um, someone having a heart attack. Like, you know, you, you, someone has a heart attack, you don't tell them, you know, well, you shouldn't have eaten all that fatty food. That You don't go shame a person for having a heart attack. So then I don't understand why our society shames a person for having a mental health disease, but it still happens a lot. And people come with a, with a lot of shame about it. And so then we have to kind of one, get rid of that shame about it. Um, culturally, we have taken on that persona. And then when it starts to break us down, we feel the shame about it. And we don't want to admit it. And, and, and I've seen many a Black woman just run her own body into the ground just to be able to do whatever it was the family needed, the, the community needed, whatever it was that was needed at that time. So trying to get a person to kind of release that as, as a, even part of their persona, the shame shouldn't be a part. The shame it shouldn't be there. Then going from there and trying to teach them what we can do to help release that stress, and then trying to mitigate any bodily damage that's already been done that's caused you know, high blood pressure, that's caused things that might cause strokes, heart attacks, those kind of things. Um, and then some of it, honestly, we have to take one for ourselves and that sometimes it's, it's even our eating. Um, you know, you stress eat and nobody stress eats asparagus. I mean, so you stress <laughs> eat and then that causes... I, I will vouch that for that. Causes, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, that you're causes, really, de you're describing a different kind of stress. I sense that this is not general anxiety because, you know, things are tough at work or, you know, I'm going through a, a temporary family crisis. Are, are we talking about the kind of stress that comes from the news of the day. I read about George Floyd and then I read about Breonna Taylor. I just can't. It's building up inside. Is that the kind of stress we're talking about? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it is the stress of, is my male child who has gone to school 
going to come home okay today? Or are they going to get stopped by the police? It is those types of of stresses. uh, Because as this happens over and over and over again, it becomes very clear that it can be any one of the brown persons that can become victim of this. And we used to think, well, if I'm in my home, I'm safe. Um, But now we've had several instances where the person was in their home and they still weren't safe. And so it, it definitely is not you know, the, I think my boss is picking on me. It's more of the, I know there's a deliberate something that's happening, that's happening to me, but it's not happening to uh, my colleagues who don't look like me. It's something that is specific to me um, that, that is, that is happening. And the stories you hear, um, the, the heartache and pain that you, that you hear, um, it, it, is, it is really heartbreaking to, to listen to some of the things that um, people are, are going through on a day-to-day basis and, and how they are processing um, their feelings and not always in the most healthy of ways. And uh, I just try my best to get um, my patients to move into where they're able to process it differently, process it maybe in a healthier way, um, such that we have a, a positive impact on, on their health and, and ultimately a positive impact on their life. I, I want every all of us to get to that stage of life and still be able to enjoy it. But a lot of it has to deal with fixing or at least even dealing with some of the stresses and, and, and the mental health uh, repercussions that these stresses cause. Mm. I love this conversation because we were just on a conversation with another guest who is Native American and fights for human rights. And, you know, he was talking about the trauma that is residual in the body. Mm -hmm. The trauma Mm -hmm. is intergenerational. It's not Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. this generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you're speaking to, I mean, so many things come to my mind, but, you know, I was just in Little Rock and my Mm -hmm. children found a vegan soul food restaurant. Mm -hmm. I, I died in went to heaven, right? (laughs) But you just saw the entire Black community coming and eating at this place. And you just knew that this woman was, and I'm trying to get her to come onto our podcast, but this Mm -hmm. woman created a food for the Black community Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. not going to perpetuate the diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that's more of an aside. This is probably harsh to say out loud, but it is something that tests my faith in humanity. And, and, and what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, if you see me in the grocery store and those types of things now, um, well, I have a mask on my face, but um, I'm not smiling. I'm not trying to make eye contact with people because I, I just don't know. And then especially right now when we have in this area, we've had um, Trump parades that have tried to run people off the road and shooting people and, you know, those kind of things. I I just I don't know who is and who isn't. So it's just better for me to kind of stay um, in my my own little uh, bubble when I'm outside in in public. I'm I'm not as as friendly as I was um, because it is it is baffling to me. And, and the thing about it is, is a lot of, lot of people um, like to, to pin it on or hang it on the hat of Christianity. I, I, I'm a Christian and I'm trying to figure out what Bible y'all reading. Um, because no, it's what not part Christian. of this? <laughs> no. how, how can you even rationalize yes. this and, and wake up in the morning and be okay with, with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it is very difficult, but I, but I do think though that somehow as an entire country, somehow we're going to have to find a way that we can 
learn to get past this to be able to come back to because I don't want our country to continue to be as divided as it is right now. Racism is is here. It's always been here. As long as we don't actually do the work to actually learn what it is within ourselves that allows us to think of this person different than that person, then this is going to continue to perpetuate. But a a lot of people don't want to have conversations about racism or implicit or explicit bias. It's uh, something that, you know, if you even imply that someone might be racist, it's I'm not racist. That's the first thing. And and it's it's one of those things of, of until we're able to have conversations where we're able to say, hey, you know, this is what I mean by that. This is how I took what you said. This is why that means something different to me um, than what it what it means to you. Until we have these conversations, we're going to continue to perpetuate the same problem that we've had the entire history of America. When honestly, it's not even something that's, that's only in America. I mean, pretty much every culture has an issue with darker skinned persons. I mean, but it is something that we need to find a way to be able to safely talk about things in a respectful manner and really look to gather information from each other and not be focused on protecting ourselves from getting hurt from what that person says. And most people are not mature enough to have those types of conversations. Yeah, so powerful. Well, Kim, we really appreciate the conversation, your openness. And I say, Kim, thank you. I also say, Dr. Austin, thank you. Uh, uh, Mom, thank you. (laughs) Wife, thank you. Uh, Yoga instructor. The thing I'd like to, to close on, and Kirsten sometimes accuses me of wanting to wrap up in some positive happily ever after and I don't think that's, I don't think that's the purpose or tone of this conversation anyway we wanted to hear it you know straight up and we need to have some some understanding of that but I guess if there were a natural personal conversation we were having you know we're having that mm-hmm. lunch or coffee I would mm-hmm. ask you mm-hmm. so what do you want to do what should I do and I guess right. if, our, if our listeners wanted to take something away that says, I'm, I'm getting the picture of the problem now. I'm starting to internalize it and accept it. I realize, you know, either you're black and brown and it's time to step up or you're white and it's time to step up. But I mean, what, what is it that you see as a very personal, individual type solution that we could walk away with? I think the one thing is if we started to see racism as not a black problem, but as a white problem. And what I mean by that is that it shouldn't be where I have to change who I am to make you more comfortable with me being a human. It should be that you have to deal with what you have inside of, of you that causes you to see me and be threatened or or feel like you need to to be better than me. Like that's a, a problem that that the white community needs to take up as far as dealing with implicit bias. Harvard has a really great website um, where you can actually do testing on all different sorts of implicit biases. And that, that can be really helpful and eye-opening to things that maybe you don't realize. Um, and then delving into that and digging into that and really kind of trying to dig that 
out and, and go out of your way to do the opposite of what that bias tells you to do, as opposed to making it a, a Black problem. Well, you shouldn't have dressed like that. You shouldn't have spoken that way. You should have just complied with the police. No, why am I a passenger in a car and I have to show you my ID? Like, I'm, I'm not even driving. I mean, and, and so I think that's one of the, the biggest things. If we could just really assign the responsibility of this problem to the correct group of people, that would be the, the, the best first thing. And then being able to just really do the self-work to, to figure out where that, that is and, and, and how to get rid of that. And then secondly, um, we have to also just start to not look at things as, as much of a me versus you kind of scenario. I, I think we have a lot of that in our culture. It's Republican versus Democrat, white versus black. Like it, it doesn't have to be a me versus you. Like we can both come to the table and I can bring you the things that I'm good at and you can bring the things that you're good at. And we can then make something together that is new and different that has never been created before. But if it's more of a, you know, well, I didn't get this job because of affirmative action, or you got that job because of affirmative It's that me versus you. It's that competitiveness as opposed to us coming together as a community and, and making beautiful new stuff that, that hasn't cre- been created before. It starts, I think, with the appropriate group taking responsibility for the problem. And I think part of it, though, too, has to be that we maybe find a different word or a different way because when, when we call people racist, they immediately shut off because nobody wants to be called a racist. And so maybe there should be a different endpoint besides, well, that person's racist. Maybe there's a, an, an educational piece that, that has to happen. Maybe that's something, uh, I had a coworker who said something about a, a group of football players calling them monkeys a few years ago. He didn't even seem to have a clue that was an awful thing to say. And I, I sat down and I spoke with him about it. He was very open with it, about it and, and, and he was very apologetic. He's just a very sheltered person. And, and so he hadn't had a lot of experience with the fact that a football team that has a lot of black people that you call monkeys or gorillas or whatever it was, like that that would be offensive to other people. But we sat down and we had a conversation about it. I taught him something that day. He's never made that mistake again. And I feel like I opened him up to something that he would have not experienced had I let the other persons in the party just get mad and report him to HR and all of those kind of things. We wouldn't have had the outcome that we had of of having a conversation, uh, a heart to heart, a hey, this is why that's not okay. And and so I I think we need to have those conversations, but I think the conversation first has to start uh, within a person's self and with that person being more aware of what it is that they're carrying around with them. Mm. Yeah. So well said. Yeah. And I think just like the the individual you were talking to, I have felt this conversation to be very educating, but also very thank inspiring you. and motivating. And just can't thank you enough for sharing thank your both you. personal, your family, your professional experiences. Agreed. And if you wouldn't mind, tell us how we can find you because I'd like your class over the other uh, <laughs> So um, I I am pretty coils rock, all one word, and then yoga um, because of my hair. <laughs> okay, very good. We will make sure we put it in We're, our posting we'll as be well. There. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> all right. Kim, thanks for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a special edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Amplifying Black Voices. 
IntelliKey Leadership Stories is copyright 2020. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. I'm Jason Lanier White. On behalf of your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson, thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.